back to Podiatry Today Podcasts, where we bring you the latest in foot and ankle medicine and surgery from leaders in the field. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the Managing Editor for Podiatry Today, and we are so excited to have three surgeons with us today to speak about osteochondral lesions. Dr. Jeffrey McAllister is a fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon and a fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. He is in private practice and is the founder of the Phoenix Foot and Ankle Institute. Dr. Alan Ng is also a fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon and a fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. He's in practice with advanced orthopedic and sports medicine specialists in Denver, Colorado. Dr. Ng does disclose that he is a consultant for Zimmer Biomet. Dr. Joshua Sabag is an associate of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons and practices with Coastal Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center in Florida. Dr. McAllister, why don't you get us started today? What we wanted to get was a good versatility of East Coast and West Coast trends. I'm going to let the speakers kind of introduce themselves, but uh, my name is Jeff McAllister and I hail from Scottsdale in Phoenix, Arizona. My name is Alan Ng. I'm here in Denver, Colorado. And looking forward to the conversation. Uh, my name is Joshua Sabag. I'm in Stewart, Florida. Also happy to be here. Great. Thanks, guys. What these podcasts are really focused on is a slew of uh, participants and listeners ranging from, as you know, kind of residents and maybe even uh, practitioners that just saw that patient in clinic with a big OCD and they have done a few scopes here and there and they, they want some answers to some questions that they may have or they are seasoned and just want a little bit more clarity on the research. And so I know Josh, you're up to date on all, all the research as you, you were putting some input into the research as well as Dr. Ng, but let's start off the conversation with what is your typical, typical kind of being the buzzword and keyword here, what is your typical patient that you are seeing in the clinic with an OCD? I get a lot of OCDs referred in. My typical patient that I see is an index osteochondral defect Essentially, it's about your you know, 30 to 40-year-old patient who has had a history of a sprain or some sort of ankle injury in the past, thought it was resolved, still having significant pain discomfort, uh, relates a clicking or a catching in their joint, comes in, shows up for you know, chronic or residual ankle pain uh, after their injury that's usually about six months to a year uh, previous. That's my typical index procedure patient. Yeah, I would agree history of an injury, whether it be major or minor, oftentimes without any previous workup to include anything like advanced imaging. A lot of times it's just plain film radiographs were taken, doc said I look good, still hurts, not getting better, you know, gave me a gel ankle sleeve, what's going on? Somewhat of a mispathology in a way. Yeah, so you're, you're, we're saying that kind of Either A, we're, we're being referred in because doc sees OCD on MRI and is concerned, hey, I don't do this, or hey, I think this is something that I can't handle, or it's something that we discover, or maybe Josh on the East Coast, maybe kind of, hey, let's get this MRI. So the next question would be, when Al or Josh, do you see that ankle sprainer where you pull the trigger on, on the first visit uh, for an MRI? When, when's your like index of suspicion the highest? You know, honestly, most of the time, it's <laughs> before you walk in the room, patients relates ankle pain and, and previous sprains, say six months ago, not getting any better related to catching sensation in your ankle. I already know before I'm going in there, I'm going to get an MRI, and I'll get an MRI immediately. Yeah. I'll see that patient. Okay. I've through range of motion. You know, I'll do typical ankle exam, yeah. real any other pathology, but most of the time, it's, it's immediately into an MRI. 
Yeah, I agree. I think if there's any evidence of instability or, you know, if they're apprehensive on a provocative type of test, I think that's a good reason to really have a low, uh, you know, low suspicion otherwise. So I would order the same. So what we're really talking about is not so much the acute situation, but more the chronic. Uh, They're veering into the chronic world in terms of severity, and it's not a osteochondral fracture per se. We're past that. We're dealing with a chronic, almost maybe an instability or an issue where the patient has had residual pain for a while. Mm -hmm. I guess I meant more of, is there a patient where they had, they sprain their ankle within the last three weeks and you say, Hey, this is, this is not your typical ankle sprain and you get an MRI and then you see an OCD or maybe an osteochondral lesion of the talus, whatever your definition is. And then you're fixing it versus maybe Dr. Ng's perspective of, Hey, this person has been treated by someone else for six months. Is there a patient that's an acute on the table ankle sprainer, maybe in a boot or splint from a urgent care and you want to get an MRI? I'll do that on patients like my younger patients that are usually higher demand athletes that come in with mom and, you know, he's playing basketball and he's got a couple games coming up and his ankle looks really swollen, like a grade three, you know, disruption of his lateral ankle ligament. Yeah. And I'm concerned that I'm trying to get this guy back into how fast can I push this guy back to activity? So a lot of times I'll order MRI on that index visit or first visit and to see you know how badly he's sprained, how bad is that ATFL, CFL uh, ligament. And a lot of times you'll find that acute OCD in, in those cases, along with the lateral ankle instability issue or lateral ankle injury. You know, the question is when do you operate on this and when would you make yep. that decision? And that's the toughest call. So yeah. a lot of times in these patients, you wanna to try to, I, I still try to immobilize them. If it's a cute younger patient, I like to see what happens and see if it, you know, the lateral ankle ligament scar back in and if the OCD kind of stabilizes itself. I still don't go in acutely and fix the ATFL, CFL, and the do an index OCD without at least some immobilization, unless it's completely separated and floating in the joint. And most of the times you'll see those osteochondral defects like a stage two. That's partially, you know, it shows up on MRI. It isn't truly detached, but you know it's there. You try to get that to heal. A lot of times that involves a subchondral bone plate. So Josh, when do you order an MRI and a CT? As, as it stands right now in the month of June in 2021, what's your call? They probably most likely have an OCD di- diagnosed by someone else on an x-ray. So yeah, it's a tough question. I'm not sure I have the best answer always for this, but if it's somewhat acute, and I know you just said six months, but if it's somewhat acute and there's an indication, I think for hey, is the tip sinusmosis involved or is there something else I need to rule out on a younger patient? I think an MRI makes good sense, so I would order an MRI. If the ligaments are abnormal or I've really convinced myself that collateral ligament instability is unilateral in this patient and that I, I believe I've made a good diagnosis, then I don't think I'm probably going to order a CT unless I'm really confident that there's something that's more osseous. So on the other hand, if I think the soft tissues are probably not the biggest issue and that I'm not getting, you know, uh, certain just clinical findings and, and, and positive anterior draws and tailor tilts and all this type of, you know, rotational tests. And it's more, I think, intra-articular, I probably would order a CT. And I think that, I think in those cases, if I'm looking for something that's truly with a bony component, then I'd want to get the CT. And I also have found myself ordering MRIs and seeing these large lesions that then when I order a CT or you know, markedly smaller. So I think if I'm planning to do something surgically, certainly can't go wrong with having both modalities, but I try to make that decision just based on other pathologies I may treat. 
Al, what about diagnostic blocks? Are you using them pretty routinely? Are you believing them? Are you using steroid or not? Do you want to hurt the OCD? What's your thought process? I still do diagnostic blocks. I do use steroid. Um, I try to see if that calms it down and you know, gives them some relief. And if it's a true osteochondral defect, it's not going to cure it. It's going to give them some temporary relief. It's going to come back. I still believe in diagnostic blocks, you know, just to make sure it's a true intra-articular pathology. So I still will do those on those patients prior to jumping in and, and fixing their OCD. Um, so yeah, I still use them pretty regularly, actually, almost almost every day in the clinic, actually. Yeah, yeah. Ultrasound guided, of course. Um, <laughs> I actually don't use ultrasound on those. Um, well, I've, I've taught you about this, Al. We need to have that discussion again. Okay. <laughs> we have two great ultrasounds. Um, I just haven't done it yet, so I'm, I'm working on it. What I've kind of seen is that that patient that you do a block on, they have some pain relief. You know they have an OCD. Let's just say you order an MRI. You see a, we'll talk about sizes and stuff, but let's just say it's one by one and you want to see the full depth of it. You want to see if it's maybe on the shoulder. I usually use it to see if I see a, a lateral or medial wall to know if I'm just going to do kind of a fill type procedure, a fill and pack, or if I need to do uh, more of an oats type procedure. So let's start talking about kind of procedure choice and stuff. When, when do you get scared about an OCD? What, what size worries you for the patient? I don't really get scared. I've seen so many of them these days. <laughs> for the patient though, you know, like you, I would not want this size OCD. So I, I just did one this week, a 20 year old female who had a failed microfracture. The whole medial shoulder is, is 18 by 10 non-constrained lesion with subclinical collapse of the medial shoulder. So that patient knew prior to surgical intervention that this is a last ditch effort to salvage her before we're doing an end block replacement. So I don't do oats or end blocks unless I failed a arthroscopic stabilization with some sort of biologic cartilage um, and resurfacing. Now in her case, and this was a kind of flows into the CT, mm -hmm. if I see subchondral bone collapse and there's architecture change on the MRI and X-ray, I'll get a CT. Otherwise, I go primarily by MRI. Even though tell, us what you, tell us what you mean by that architecture change. So when you start seeing the X-ray, you see the shoulder collapse. MRI, mm -hmm. you're seeing subcondyl bone collapse. So you're seeing loss of your, your, your structure of your talus. That's right. when I order a CT scan because, because of fact, we both, just like Josh was saying, that MRIs overestimate. So when I see that osseous component that's visible on X-ray and MRI, I get the CT. If it's not that osseous wise or not that collapsed, I'll just stick with the MRI. On her case, her whole shoulder was collapsed. I had her previous scope pictures from one of my partners. I saw the x-ray that showed the shoulder collapse. I had the MRI that showed subchondral bone is essentially, you know, collapse or true osteochondritis desiccans. So in that case, I was planning a bone graft procedure arthroscopically with a, you know, cartilage over cartilage spackle, I call it, on top. Mm -hmm. So that's when I order a CT and that's, I guess you were saying that's what makes you worried. It makes me worried that this is their last ditch effort prior to a end block or even eventually, you know, TAR or ankle fusion. So, yeah. but does it truly scare you? I mean, you know, no, I'm, I, that's what I mean. I, yeah. Right. The, the patient that, that exact comment was, you know, that this is the beginning of the end for this, the yep. medial shoulder at least, or whatever. Yeah, and it's a 20 year old, so young patients yes. scare me. Yes. Young patients exactly. scare me more than older patients. Sure. Josh, do you have any experience, any feedback? Yeah, it's funny. I, as you know, I recently reached out to you about this and um, I've got a, right now a 52 year old with 
18 months. She's got a posteromedial shoulder lesion, 14 by 17 on MRI. And then it was remeasured on CT, something nominally close. It actually didn't have the, the significant change that I expected in this case, which I thought was somewhat informative. But posteromedial shoulder lesion had a scope, had a stabilization procedure, had the marrow stimulation, fibrocartilage, you know, hope for the type two at best scenario and still symptomatic. So we talked about similar things like, like Alan said, and whether or not a true osteochondral transfer of hyaline cartilage is going to work versus do we do something else maybe more aggressive given her age group. And I think it's a tough case in any, uh, any scenario, but she's not 20. So I think I'd be more concerned given the youth, like Alan mentioned. So in this case, we're, we're planning to do a shoulder, you know, metallic shoulder kind of hemi, hemi talus type transplant. And I think that this is probably going to be best for her, given that we still have bailouts and other options if that, you know, is unsuccessful. What's winning in your practice right now? Are you guys doing anything different? Are you advancing the sciences? Uh, what are you talking to about patients that may be uh, different beyond just kind of a sample? Uh, staple uh, fusion or an ankle replacement or whatever. Al, are you doing anything exciting right now? Are there, are there some new um, hot companies out there, topics even, that are kind of advancing the science? What do you got for us? You know, there's not a lot of new stuff out there that I've seen that really excites me. You know, the, the thing about looking at osteochondral defects, I look at the structure, which is subchondral bone plate, and I look at the cartilage. And those are the two main things I look for when I'm trying to restore or fix an osteochondral defect. You know, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of AJ-based stuff, hyaluronic acid-based stuff out of Europe and Asia that isn't approved here yet. And that's something I've mm -hmm. been waiting to see and take a look at. Obviously we can't get our hands on it here yet. So that's kind of exciting looking at that and looking at some of the results from Gobi out of Italy and see what his results are with his HA. But obviously he created it. So, you know, you always take that with a grain of salt. Other things you're looking at, I mean, like like Josh was talking about some of the hemi, a little portion block or shoulder replacements, you know, partial knee replacements in the knee, you know, do they most time they end up with total? So I'm a little little worried about that. Yeah. You, you don't go in that role. End blocks we've gone through in the past. We know that yeah. end blocks have had their issues. So the biggest thing I, I would look into that I've talked to a couple companies about is can you make an end block that's enhanced? You know, mm -hmm. that, that's some sort of uh, biologic uh, osteoconductive and osteoinductive end block, not just an allograft, but something that's like supercharged. And there's been yeah. some discussion about that stuff and we're trying to figure out the best, the best way to do that. Because right now, I mean, as you know, I do a lot of cartilage grafting and subchondral stabilization, but you know, that doesn't always cure the deformity. Right. Yeah. It's a, not a one-stop shop. No. Sometimes you end up doing that. You have to do an end block or partial talus. And, you know, then again, you're taking a cadaver that's been, it's fresh in theory has some cells left in it, but I mean, you don't know how good that is. So is yep. there a way to enhance the, enhance it when it fails? Uh, that's something that I'm looking at. That's a little more exciting, hopefully. In the yeah. I've, I've looked into some screw, uh, they're AJ coated, uh, porous screw fixation options that allow for some scaffolding to be sewed onto them. As you probably heard, I think that has an opportunity, uh, cylindrical, multiple sizes. I think it may work for some of those central contained lesions. And those are the chip shots, obviously, because most of us are used to doing, you know, a mosaic type procedure where we can just harvest it from the knee or whatever, or uh, fresh graft. But I think that 
we're, we're still toying around with what type of metal can work or won't work. And um, well, from my, uh, go ahead. You know what excites me more than anything with what you're talking about right now is in the first MPJ. Screw that in the- in Right, the, right. And put something on that. More so than the ankle. Yes. I think the MPJ is the more yeah. of the unknown territory or the difficult one yep. to really stabilize. And yeah, yeah. The ankle, but you got to do an open arthrotomy or you got to do a mean amount takedown to get that true exposure, just like you would with the OATS procedure. But in the first MBJ, you can expose that and fix that osteochondral defect with that, that device you're talking about. That's what kind of excites me about that. I, I agree. I think with some of the recent declination in product use, I think that the failures of, of some are opportunities for another. And I think that's definitely in the Freiburgs and all the other kind of zebras. But yeah, I agree. I think that first MTP, we didn't really touch on that too much, but I think there's still a ton of opportunity for research. And that's the cool thing, listeners, about this, this uh, area of expertise. Now is definitely a big proponent of, of advanced cartilage repair, and he has a good site up there in Denver. But I think the opportunity still exists for us to win. There's a lot of room for advancement, which is neat. We, we haven't reached the finish line. And that allows for all the research that's being done, still a window of opportunity to win. And anybody doing anything fancy in the office that's working, uh, trying to keep people out of the OR for some of the lay listeners? I'm dabbling it a little bit. And I think that it makes good sense. And I can speak just anecdotally for a few patients where they can tell me, hey, you know, this, this did feel better. And I feel like it's helping me. But they've all come back and, and stated it's, it's relatively short-lived. So I'm not sure if that's just similar effect like you'd experience from a cortisone type of deal. Um, but it's nothing that's robust and durable. That's been my experience. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I tried all those PRPs and, you know, now that they're gone, but the placental injections, you know, nothing really lasts. You know, osteochondral defects are mechanical deformity that causes, you know, impingement or catching in the joint. So you can, unless you can get rid of that mechanical issue, I don't think you're going to be able to get any good treatment in the office. You're going to have to go in there and fix it surgically. Josh, tell us some about your... Um your research. I mean, we all do ankle fractures. We all see these osteochondral lesions, the talus in and around perioperatively, I guess, with ankle fractures. I'm pretty sure both of you scope ankle fractures routinely and it's come, it's come and gone through the research and, you know, what works and what doesn't depending on what country you're in. But I think that for the most part, we all understand that these lesions are common. Tell us about some of your research and, and looking at that with ankle fractures and stuff. So I, I, as a resident, I actually started saving patients to a folder I put, uh, put together a paper with our team in, in Florida Hospital, and um, essentially we looked at incidents of Taylor osteochondral lesions for uh, acute ankle fractures. It was retrospective, and we had looked at, I think it was 262 patients is kind of what met the, uh, the general criteria, and these were all surgical. These weren't patients with injuries that then went on to uh, do great. These were patients with an operative ankle fracture. And after we looked at the inclusion exclusion criteria, we ended up with 108 patients. And bottom line, there was an incidence of roughly 50%, um, which was similar to previous studies. So, you know, we looked at the topographic map of the Taylor Dome, and we also tried to see where they're most frequently found. And kind of as we suspected, their shoulder lesions primarily, one in five were posteromedial, 20%. And one in three or 30 plus percent were posterolateral in our cohort. Um, so 50%, uh, you know, was a significant number. And the majority of these patients had a BMI of 30. So we're talking about obese patients clinically with ankle fractures that required surgery 
frequently had a posterior shoulder lesion. And these lesions were identified via CT scan and basically agreed upon by four doctors in order to say this was definitively an OCD. So I guess what we really got out of that is that probably should be scoping them frequently. And don't forget, you know, the posterior side in terms of just access. So whether or not there's a bend in the knee or you're using a 2.7 versus a 4.0 or you use a distractor or not, I'm not sure that there's a particular algorithm that's the most appropriate, but being more cognizant and efficiently scoping these patients and looking for lesions, I think is just once again been shown to be reasonable. So that's, that's kind of what we came up with. Hey, Josh, a quick follow-up to that, though. I mean, I scope my, most of my ankle fractures, as Jeff knows. Yeah. So the question is, what do you do when you find the osteochondral defect interoperatively on, on a patient? And, you know, is it, do you fix it? Do you take it out? What, what do you usually, what do you guys have been doing when you find them? I think that's, that's the toughest question right now. So I think you, you got to be prepared. And so for, you know, I'm an arthritis guy, but for, for my cases, the, the vendors kind of know to have, basically some of the biocartilage type products available because I think that's not a bad option for certain cases and microfracture removal kind of as indicated if it's difficult to reach and I'm totally unprepared for something that's more significant and I missed it on whatever imaging I pulled or it's uh, just been missed on plain film then at the very least I can document it and have a good conversation with the patient and I think do better medicine because of that so that's that's kind of a worst case scenario but ideally it's, if it's loose, it's coming out. If it looks like it's something I can tack back down that's viable, then I'll do that. And um, if it's something in between that I think marrow stimulation is indicated for, then, then I do that. Yeah, number one, be prepared. So if you really, I mean, most of the time we're not ordering a CT on every, you yeah. know, bimal. I, I don't live in that kind of environment, but that's just not run of the mill type of practice for me. But I am always prepared to open it up more if necessary. So if I do, uh, if I'm looking at that wag staff type injury, and I'm going to repair the AITFL. If I've done an anterior drawer, I'm very aggressive with stressing in the OR. Uh, so that's kind of the, the next kind of component of the, the issue. But um, looking at it from an open perspective, um, if, I, if, I, if I am scoping and I feel like yeah, it's a little too posterior, it's past one o'clock, I can't really get to it, then I'll just use my fracture as an osteotomy and kind of open it up and take care of it. And by taking care of it, meaning throw some darts or if it, if it is truly a fracture per se, that's um, just cartilage, I'm probably going to take it out. I'm not going to try to, um, uh, I would consider that dead cartilage at that point. I'm probably not going to try to, if it, does, if it doesn't contain any kind of subchondral bone on it, which is uncommon, but um, if it is truly an osteochondral fragment or fracture, then I would, I would try to tack it back down to seal over it uh, the best I can and kind of hope and pray, probably squeeze some PRP or BMA in there or BMAC. But um, uh, you know, most of the time, those are probably going to be on the anterolateral kind of portion of the talus anyway. And if it's on the medial side, then there's probably a medial malfracture. And uh, then I can kind of use that. If I can't get to it, then I'll use that open incision that I'm typically going to use because I don't perk screws for my medial mal anyway. So um, I'll kind of use that to my, to my advantage. <clears throat> but I think good medical documentation is kind of the important part for the residents and stuff listening. And then these are always a challenge, guys. I mean, these these always propose that conversation afterwards, right? Like I'm hurting six months down the road. Why? Oh, well, look here, look at the scope picture. Like Al said, you have the good documentation of your partner's surgery and everything else that was done previously. But again, like you said, having things prepared in the room, like your uh, particulate cartilage, your tissue. I mean, those are things that surgery centers don't necessarily have kind of on the shelf. 
Al, why don't you, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a big uh, saponderplasty, uh, if I had to use a trade name kind of guy, what, um, what are your indications real quick and how are they doing? So indications on those patients, those patients are all, they're not acute injuries. They're all chronic injuries. Yep, the yep, ones yep. that are, you know, six months to a year to two years or revision surgery that I'm using them on. And the MRI has to show on T1 some, some kind of bone loss or necrosis, meaning that it's, it lights up on, on T1. T2, you may have the whole shoulder lit up, but primarily it's just under the subchondral bone on the T1. And these are these patients that have been symptomatic for a while or had a failed microfracture or abrasion technique on, his, on their ankle. Um, and those patients um, were volume limited, meaning that I only put about no more than probably 0.5 at the max. And most time it's 0.25. And I want to see leakage of that calcium phosphate into the osteochondral lesion. And here's the reason why, because we know based on the literature in the past that the subchondral bone plate, if it's, if it's failed, you're getting that, that joint fluid pushed into the osteochondral defect causing the subchondral bone cyst. So we know there's a failure of the subchondral bone plate and we know that's where a lot of the pain is coming from. So the goal is essentially to spackle that the small crack, the small amount that's causing the fluid to go into the bone. And that may be a, a tiny little fissure. It may be a little hole that you're gonna see the calcium phosphate come through. And that's when you know you've hit the right spot. If I don't see leakage or if I don't see fat bubbles or marrow bubbles extruded from the osteochondral lesion, when I'm injecting the calcium phosphate, then I missed. So that's very important. And volume is probably the most important thing. You can easily kill a talus if you put too much calcium phosphate in it, meaning even like a CC and a half to two CCs, you can kill that talus. So you have to be very, very careful. How have you learned that? Like maybe your own experience, but just tell me what. Yeah. When you see a revision, when you get a revision patient, patient had a microfracture, say, say they're not a bridge or chondroplasty, which usually is better than a microfracture. I think microfracture, <laughs> as you heard me before, Jeff, I think microfracture is the devil. So when you look at ankle osteochondral yep. defects, they're not delaminated. Their majority involve an osseous component. And when you break the subchondral bone plate and take a piece of it with it, with the osteochondral lesion, it's truly to microfracture, it doesn't make sense because it's not an intact subchondral bone plate. So with, a, with the intact subchondral bone plate or even a non-intact subchondral bone plate, why are you punching more holes in the bone? By punching more holes, you're giving more access for the joint fluid to be pushed into the bone and cause edema. And, and I, I know there's a tons of studies out there that show short-term improvement with microfracture, you know, 80, 90%, but short-term is short-term, meaning it can be anywhere from six months to you know five years. And those patients are coming back. And I've seen that in my practice. I've been practicing for 20 years now, and I've seen those patients come back. So it doesn't make sense to me to punch more holes in the subchondral bone plate where that's the initial reasoning why they failed in the first place. So I think a reasonable option is, you know, do an abrasion contraplast to clean up the calcified layer and maybe put some sort of biologic. If it's an older patient, I'll just do BMAC and to, and to seal and seal that, that damaged area, but I'm not punching more holes. Um, so, you know, that's why we use the calcium phosphate as well is to stabilize that, that fissure or crack so none of that synovial fluid, joint fluid can go into the bone anymore and you're stabilizing that entrance into the cancellous bone. And then most of the time, I'm, you know, particular particular cartilage over the top to uh, to enhance the growth of that hyaline-like cartilage. Awesome. So, you know, I've been doing a lot of these, and as you know, I get a lot of referred in for 
for failed ones. And, and seeing all those failed micro fractures just, just kind of me thinking about it more and more. I started looking at the results and looking at why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's why yep. it's, it's all about the subcondyl bone. Our initial improvements on the particulated cartilage was because we used it to seal and in, in, in other, and we're actually sealing the subcondyl bone anyways with the seal and laying the cartilage and sealing over top. And when the cartilage incorporates, it does seal off that subcondyl bone plate. But I don't think it does as good of a job as if you inject it from underneath and know that you've essentially plugged that crack. Can I ask a follow-up question? Please, no, please. Yeah, I think that's really fantastic points. Do you, uh, what do you guys think in terms of, you know, post-op immobilization time periods, I mean, and I, I understand that it obviously depends on the size of the lesion and the procedure chose, but is there, is there some algorithm that you found is most successful? And then secondarily, how many of these are you doing concurrent stabilizations and, and things like that, that you just seem to see go along with it? So if I'm just doing subcondyl bone stabilization with some sort of biologic, not particulated cartilage and to seal their weight bearing immediately, if they're doing particulated cartilage or any type of cartilage type graft, whether it's particulated juvenile, whether it's adult cartilage, or it may be they're non-weight bearing for four weeks, but early range of motion starts at week two. We know that fiber and glue is good for about two weeks before it starts going away. So hopefully by then you have enough stability with a hematoma clot to hold, a, hold it in place. Um, they don't weight bear till four weeks. They're in a boot for two weeks after that start physical therapy at week four to five for range of motion, um, only no impact for four months. Uh, we found out on second looks, going back in, looking at the particulated cartilage, four months is when you start seeing uh, coverage over the area with hydrophilic cartilage, but the cubes are resorbing, but you can still see the cubes. We've done 12 month looks and they're incorporated. It takes about 18 months for fully incorporated hyaline cartilage that does not look hydrophilic and you can't see the cubes. So that's been my um, my post-op protocol. And mine is not not too much different. Two or three things that I'll add to it would be um, no re-imaging. I won't re-image for a year. Even if they came in six months from a surgery, they're, they're upset about something or other. I wouldn't re-image it for another year. Two would be uh, ancillary procedures. For the most part, even if they are getting a whatever lat stab stuff or maybe a deltoid repair or whatever, they're not fully weight bearing uh, till four anyway for me, but open chain range of motion begins at two weeks anyway. We're implementing PT in the office and stuff. So that kind of helps streamline things a little bit, a little bit faster. And then I have some eyes on it. And then also I, I typically will kind of during the index procedure, I'll usually utilize uh, PRP and, and things like that uh, as I'm coming out after the incisions are closed and stuff. But I think for the most part, non-weight bearing is the key portion of this until about four weeks when we can start load loading that joint i'm a little bit less aggressive with like oats and and bigger in block procedures and stuff i think we're just talking about yeah. you know the sandwich approach or subchondroplasty plus yeah we're not talking about medium out takedowns and all that stuff sure. but i i try to i try to avoid medium out takedowns as much as possible creating a big peel on fracture is, is not something i enjoy with a good wide hinderman and a good ankle distractor and some big paws like Al, you can definitely <laughs> plantar flex that foot enough to avoid that. And that's that's something that the listeners really can get some good experience with scope courses and stuff. You can definitely, um, there's multiple studies looking at kind of tra a trajectory on a talus from, you know, the nine o'clock to three o'clock to be able to uh, 
determine whether you even need a medial malosteotomy or not. But some some of us, I think, are doing more notchplasties and kind of anterior approaches to some of these to avoid delaying that weight-bearing protocol and stuff. Yeah, I've been um, doing, I think, I think six weeks uh, for these. And I'm not sure if it's just overly conservative, but that's why I was curious how much more aggressive you all have been. Sure. So I got the answer. So the problem I would ha I had when I started doing six weeks and immobilizing longer and with the technique I use with the juvenile cartilage, I got overgrowth in, in arthrofibrosis. So mm -hmm. meaning that it, it may be something to do with the amount of uh, growth factor and chondrocytes in the juvenile cells, but it caused a lot of scar tissue to form that area. And it caused, I got a lot of overgrowth when I first started doing these. And I agree with Jeff 100%. I want images for a year. Um, there's no reason to, because you're gonna. The, the, I've done that before, and the radiologist comes back and says, you know, osteochondral defect still present, possible graft still noted in the area. And you go in there and scope it, and you see all the graft still sitting there because it's too hydrophilic. So it's too much water content. So it looks like it's gone, but it's all right there. So don't image them. I agree with Jeff 100% on that. I move them early so they don't scar and they don't get arthrofibrosis. I will rescope these if they're jamming or having stiffness in the joint, I will rescope the area and do a cleanup and sometimes trim down the cartilage after about four months if they're having issues. Monday morning quarterback, I have a arthrodiastasis coming up. 30 something, 30 nothing years old, pilon, hardware removed, not, not specifically an OCD per se, but let's just say I get in there and I've imaged him. There's no huge hole or anything, but let's say I wanna do a little patchwork and I'm throwing on a, an ankle uh, X-fix or whatever, and I'm weight-bearing him. I think that's the key part. I think that what we know with ankle arthrodiastasis is that the synovial characteristics are different with arthrodiastasis. Al, what are any experience with that? What can you help me with? Do you think it's a good idea to throw some juvenile cartilage stuff? Not without much damage. I usually would not. I usually probably use BMAC more than anything else rather than doing juvenile cartilage for that. That's you know one of the contraindications, in, in my opinion, for you know, car juvenile cartilage grafting is someone who is sniffly arthritic, you know, non. So global, you mean global arthritis? It's, yeah, it just doesn't do well. You know, okay. uh, subchondral stabilization with that combined with whatever biological choice that you'd you'd want, I think is a good option. BMAC, PRP, even even bowel cartilage may not be a bad option for that. You know, because you're kind of spackling the whole the whole area. It, it, it's an expensive, as we all know, price is difficult these days. And putting four or $5,000 worth of cartilage on spackling areas on a global arthritis just is, doesn't seem to work very well. And what about just a, uh, maybe one of the last couple of things here is a lot of us that see these kind of always dread that tibial lesion. What, what, do you, what are your, what's your 30 second spiel on a tibial, maybe kissing? Uh, lesion and maybe your successes with it and are you just doing the same thing you're just kind of hoping for the best or are you doing something different arthroscopic distraction gives you proper exposure to that area and i treat it the same way i'll clean up the, the edges make them firm you know dress this up on a bone plate if necessary and then i'll spackle in my my particular cartilage and seal it it's not nice. that hard to do if you put them in the distractor properly yep you know this is an interesting question i uh it's funny i, I did one of these and I agree, I don't see why you would treat it much differently. It's still, you know, axial loading and uh, similar thickness, et cetera. But this gentleman had a chronic um, syndesmotic disruption. He had a PER type fracture and a mesonew fracture. And uh, it was treated non-operatively. And he did 
you know, he's a large guy. He was in a cam boot, just didn't get better. Pretty, pretty wide on the mortise view. And I did get advanced imaging on him and there was a, a assist in the plafond side. Uh, and in that case, I actually ended up putting a 7-0 screw from back to the front, kind of through the area of where the marrow uh, was cystic. And I genuinely believe that doing the syndesmotic stabilization with a buttress plate, the arthroscopic debridement, basically checking off those boxes, but then placing hardware across that basically, uh, uh, you know, superior kind of posterior maltype lesion allowed for some ingrowth in that area. And he did extremely well. So I'm not sure if that was just a unique scenario, but that was a, I was more comfortable placing fixation across there than I would have been in a talus. Uh, and it worked out in his case. Yeah, I've, I've done similar type of stuff for bone marrow, edema, lesions that just will not go away at conservative treatment yeah. with some uh, subchondroplasty type materials of calcium phosphate and screw fixation for almost rebar. Uh, it's worked a couple of times in some, medial, some thinned medial malleolus and different kind of cysts like that. You follow them for a year and you never see them again. So I don't know how they're doing past a year, but I haven't had to take the screws out or do anything other crazy on them. Do you guys want to hit any other high points that you we've thought about you? I've been using a lot more BMAX sometimes with uh, doing the, the calcium plaster or sarcondoplasty um, on patients that have increased amount of possible early AVN or possible osteonecrosis, death, true osteonecrosis desiccans. So I'll, I'll do the same thing and use some BMAC with that as well to try to stimulate and stabilize. Results are still early, so who knows if that's going to help or not, but it makes me feel better. Yeah, well, I think we're all trying to do stuff that, like, we're just – we, we know kind of what works pretty darn well, and we're trying to improve on it and, and really hit a home run, but these are very, very challenging. Yeah, I've got a quick question. Um, yeah, I think historically, I know for me and probably some of the other younger listeners too, you know, we, we're taught like, uh, you know, less than a centimeter and a half squared and microfracture, and there's relatively well-defined upper limits as to how that works. But um, I'm thinking maybe Alan's onto something, and I'm curious, do you think that that you know, size constraint is something that is still holding strong, or do you think that maybe that's no longer the case? Size doesn't matter in my opinion, in this case. It's constrainment. If it's a non-constrained lesion, shoulder lesion, that doesn't have a border, you have to do something biologic in there. You can't just do an abrasion condoplasty or a microfracture. And the new recent literature shows that. If it's a non-constrained lesion, you gotta do something. Uh, constrained lesions, those are, those are like slam dunks, like, I high five myself I'm going into that case because I know I'm in and out in 30 minutes because those are easy ones to fix. It's the non-constrained ones. I don't care if it's 15 millimeters, 20 millimeters, five millimeters. It doesn't matter. It matters where the OCD is. So like I said, I did a 20 mil, 18 to 20 millimeter by 10 millimeters shoulder lesion on a 20 year old this week, this last week. And I didn't even think twice about doing that. I know some people would probably just go right to an end block on that. I just think that's kind of overkill and also puts you at higher risk for failure. If you can treat it arthroscopically in a closed environment and still get some biology in there, and if, especially in a patient that's young, give them a chance to heal it. You're not burning your bridges and you still have the ability to do an end block down the road. So it, I would never, yeah. I don't ever use that 15 millimeter limit anymore. What about, I had a recent one that, um, we, it was, it looked, it, it appeared more cystic. It, I mean, it was literally the size of a marble, like perfectly round on MR, almost looked lipoma-ish, intraosseous lipoma-ish, but it didn't have the like bubble look to it. 
in inside. But what we were uh, able to see arthroscopically is the huge fissures on the medial shoulder. We were able to plantar flex him good enough. We ended up impacting him with like just autogenous proximal tibial bone graft and uh, felt like it was about one, one by one by one, basically with, with a thin little wall down, we still had intact medial wall. And so I didn't feel like in that instance with the depth that I was able to fill it per se with calcium phosphate or whatever. And I wasn't quite sure because I couldn't quite tell on the, the medial side whether um, that wall was fully intact. So I, I did open it to be able to assess that and a freer and everything. It wasn't, it wasn't falling over. So I just got some proximal tibial bone graft. I poked a couple holes kind of in the bottom of, or I scooped it out, sorry, with the curette, made sure it was nice and flat and got all the bad cartilage out of there. And then anything that was for the listeners, just kind of flapping up basically on the edge of the lesion. And then um, almost like wallpaper. So if the wallpaper is kind of peeling up a little bit, then it's probably not stuck down anymore, obviously, or if it's not, it's not adhered down to the subchondral plate. So, um, and so uh, we curated that out and then impacted it with a proximal tibia bone graft, put some um, cartilage replacement biologic on top to seal. And uh, he's following up in Texas with somebody, but I had never done that before, to be honest with you. Super reasonable, but so I figured out when I, when I see that lesion like that, I'll go into scope and to breathe that cyst arthroscopically. And when I get the cyst down yeah. to where I see good normal bone or healing bone or even bleeding from the bone when I curatage it, once I see a little bit of bleeding sure. coming from that area of this deep cyst, and like the one I did last week was probably eight millimeters deep. Once I see a little blood, I know I'm, I've curated enough of the bad cyst out. I usually do the subchondroplasty or the calcium phosphate, and I'm talking the small volume 0.2 to 0.4. And when I inject it, like I said, I'll see the calcium phosphate come through the lesion. So I'm probably putting in about 0.15 or 0.2 right. max. So I'm, I'm, I'm scoping, shaving out, and pulling out the excess that comes in the joint. Once that area is stabilized, I, I used um, allograft chips. I mashed it up, put it through the scope cannula, and dropped it in arthroscopically on top of some fiber glue over that area. Patted it in, filled the cyst until I got to the level of the of the subchondral bone surrounding, and then I laid the, the novo over the top on the layer of to seal as well. So nice. I, exactly the thing you did essentially, but I just I just tend to try to do as much as I can for the scope. Yeah, and I, and I, I've seen that, that thin shelf on the medial side, and that always makes me nervous. So most of the time it's loose, I'll just shave it, and I'll just I'll remodel and shape that shoulder uh, kind of with the graft, the, the duodenal particulate graft, and the to seal together, and kind of literally just kind of shape it as I'm in there. Yeah, I, again, I just, I was trying to avoid a pylon. And uh, so if anybody has any questions, um, please reach out to each, each of us. Yeah, this is a ever, ever uh, a changing topic and uh, us three are no by the world experts, but I think that we're doing enough to have some expertise and at least some, some background knowledge and experience. And um, please reach out to each of us. Uh, and if you have any questions, please holler. Thank you so much to all three of you for sharing your time and expertise with us today on this really interesting topic. We hope you'll join us again next time on Podiatry Today podcasts for new and emerging information in the field of podiatric medicine and surgery. Don't forget to look for us on podiatrytoday.com and on your preferred platforms for podcasts. 